Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, June 11th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 1 to 13. The heart of man is desperately sick. The rampant idolatry of the people of Judah is exhibit A for the prophet Jeremiah, and yet the Lord remains the hope of Israel. Those who forsake their trust in men and place their trust in the one true God, they are blessed. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Peter Ill. Pastor Ill serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning, Pastor Apple. Thank you so much for having me back, and thank you for letting me study such a great text with you today. The book of Jeremiah is a fantastic book. I'm, I'm appreciating it more and more as we go through it here on Sharper Iron. Pastor Ill, as we prepare to look at the first part of chapter 17 today, what context would you have us know about Jeremiah, his ministry, where we are in the Old Testament that'll help us with these verses? Jeremiah is writing to uh, the people in the 6th century BC, and the Lord is angry with his people for their sins of idolatry and for their sin of forsaking him. And he is preparing to allow them to be run over by the Babylonians and taken into exile. And here in chapter 17, he is especially speaking against their idolatry and against their faithlessness toward him. And he is going to uh, show what that's like. But especially here in chapter 17, we see Jeremiah connecting with other readings in the Old Testament, especially with the Psalms. And we will also see how the way that Jeremiah writes is picked up by uh, New Testament authors and speakers, especially St. John, uh, as he writes in his gospel and in the book of Revelation. A lot of these same images that show up in Jeremiah 17 are going to show up in the gospels. Lots of images to look at in this text today. Jeremiah is a, a master preacher when it comes to the pictures that he paints in our minds, and today's text is no exception. So let's go ahead and take a look at the verses we've got today. We're in Jeremiah 17, beginning at verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars while their children remember their altars and their asherim, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains and the open country. Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever." Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. 
He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days, they will leave him, and at his end, he will be a fool. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. That's our text for today, Jeremiah 17, verses 1 to 13. Pastor L, the first image that Jeremiah brings up is the image of writing. It's in that very first verse. Take us into that first image. What's being communicated by Jeremiah? What other texts do we need to know about? Let's, let's talk about it. Oh, so this pen of iron, uh, this isn't just your nice fountain pen that has like uh, the really nice tip on it, uh, but usually we would call an iron pen a chisel that you would use to carve in the rock. Uh, and so it talks about how this pen of iron or this chisel uh, with a point of diamond, uh, the sin of Judah is written uh, using that kind of a chisel, something that's permanent. Uh this is even more permanent, I guess we would say, than ink. Uh, you know, sometimes you pencil something on your calendar, and when you're sure about it, you go back over and you write it in ink. Well, if you were really, really sure of it, I guess you could go back and, and chisel it in. And that is the work of God's law here, uh, condemning the sin of Judah. Uh, this sin is, is permanent, and it is real. And so it is chiseled. Uh, in the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars, uh, which gets into next images. So whenever you have something that you're writing with, like a chisel or a pen, you also have something that you're writing on, a tablet or a piece of paper um, or a stone. And Jeremiah goes very quickly that this law is written on the tablet of their heart. But already, I, I guess I got ahead of myself you asked about other places in scripture where this shows up. This idea of an iron pen also shows up uh, commonly for many of us in the book of Job in chapter 19. Uh, this is a text that gets read a lot at funerals and is also uh, the basis of, of that hymn, I Know That My Redeemer Lives. Job 19, 23 through 27 uh, goes like this. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. But there is a bit of a point of contrast here between Jeremiah and Job. Job talks about the permanence of the sin of Judah. Job 
sorry, Jeremiah talks about that. Job talks about the certainty of faith that can be inscribed in that with that same rock and with that same chisel. While that's different, the permanent nature of both of these confessions is the point of comparison for us today. Judah's sin of idolatry is permanent, and it needs to be dealt with in a permanent way. Uh, I suppose that it's important to say that all sin is permanent. As often as I look back at the sins that I myself have and think, oh, I wish I could go press the undo button or go back in time and not do that and undo the effects of that sin, that it doesn't work that way. The hurts and the pains that I have caused and that others have caused me are, are not undoable. Instead, we simply commend those things to God in his wisdom to fix because we see the permanence of our sinfulness. We also see the permanence of our God. Does that comparison make sense, Pastor Apple? It, it does. And so the, the image that Jeremiah is picking up here with this chisel, the point of diamond, is a, a thought of permanence, that the sin that Judah has committed, their idolatry particularly, has engraved upon them in such a way that they can't fix it. And, and I think, I mean, I think that's where the image that Job makes use of the same image for a different reason, but that idea of a, of a permanent fix, if you will, that the Lord will give in the resurrection. I know that my Redeemer lives. Job's want, Job wants that written down in a permanent way. That's the only fix that can come. And although it's maybe not exactly the same image in terms of the permanent writing, but, but what Jeremiah does here in chapter 17, I think sets the stage for what he will do later in his book in one of the more, I think, one of the more familiar texts from Jeremiah in chapter 31, where the Lord promises the new covenant. And he says, I'll put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Now, it doesn't use the iron pen language there, the chisel language, but I think that's maybe the counterpart to this text is that the people have sinned in such a way through their idolatry that they can't undo it. And so that it does require the Lord to undo it. That's where Job comes in. And that's where I think Jeremiah will go later in chapter 31. Exactly. So Pastor Ill, with that thought of the writing on the hearts, I think there's some other places in scripture we can pick up there as well, besides Jeremiah 31. There are, and this is something that St. Paul picks up on in the New Testament. In Romans 2.15, Paul speaks and writes in a similar way. And there he says, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Well, their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. He's talking there about uh, those who do not walk according to the words and commands of God, uh, similarly to how Jeremiah is speaking to those uh, trapped in idolatry. And as he continues to speak, it has that same idea of things written on the human heart. And as he talks about what is written on the heart, it is that law of God that is written on the heart and the sinfulness that is known on their heart. 
um, everything that we as sinners and that the people of Judah as sinners did uh, flows from their heart. Even as Jesus talks about in the Gospels, that it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, but what comes out of their heart that defiles them. This sinfulness is written and evident on the hearts of the people of Judah. And as much as we would like to say, oh, we're really a lot different from them. Well, we can't say that at all because our own sinfulness shows that our sin is written on our hearts too. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 talk about God's grace being written on our hearts as well. Uh, once again, that idea of permanence and what's written on the heart is what we're comparing, even though for Jeremiah and Paul in 2 Corinthians, they're coming at it from different places. Not only is sin written on the heart, but Paul wants to emphasize that God's grace, too, is written on the heart to overwrite that sin and sinfulness. And that same image is used not just for condemnation, like it's used here in Jeremiah, but also for God's grace, uh, for God overwriting uh, what's written on the heart. Uh, much like if... If you chiseled something in stone, I don't, I don't know, Pastor Apple, if you are um, a stonemason at all, if you break out your chisel and your hammer and you go carve names and things into rocks, I can't say that I do. But once you've done that, how do you erase it? You have to scrape away all the rock and overwrite it. And it's that kind of overwriting, that permanent overwriting of removing sin and re-carving it that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 2 and 3. I'm also reminded of the image that Ezekiel makes use of, where he talks about the Lord taking out the heart of stone that his people have and giving a heart of flesh. And I know the, the image starts to change a little bit there, but I think it, I think it factors in as well as another gospel image of, of this heart of stone, heart of flesh, what the Lord does to, to do what his people could not do in saving them. Now, Pastor L, in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah also says, not only is there an engraving on the tablet of their heart, but there's also an, an engraving on the horns of their altars. First of all, we probably need to understand what what's that, the horns of the altars, and then what's being engraved there. Right. So uh, we, we think about altars, like our altars in church today, um, and we don't think, and, and then we think about horns, and usually when we think about horns, we either think about like trumpets, or we think about, uh, you know, bulls have horns. Longhorns. Texas yeah, longhorns. Lo yeah, longhorns if you're from Texas. Uh, just normal horns if you're from Illinois. Um, <laughs> or, or wherever else you are, uh, I guess. But the... Uh, when the scripture speaks about the horns of an altar, it's another word for the corner, uh, much like uh, the, and those corners would extend, I suppose, kind of like the, uh, the horn of an anvil. Um, once again, uh, not, a, not a metal worker, but that anvil has that, that point that comes off the end of it. Uh, the altar that was built in the tabernacle and in the temple had corners that stuck off the, uh, the ends. And the, uh, the altars that the people of Judah built to their idols also had those horns. 
and those corners. And it was those horns and corners that would hold their sacrifices to their false gods. Uh, notice here in Jeremiah 17.1 that it talks about how uh, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron on the horns of their altars in the plural. Uh, this isn't just the altar, say, in the temple or the tabernacle, but these are the altars of idolatry, where the people are going in Judah, even among God's chosen people, to have their sacrifices to their false gods and to their idols. And there, their sin of idolatry is seen and known. Their sinfulness of idolatry and actively, willingly choosing to follow other gods while being the Lord's people is known right there. Uh, I guess that the horns of an altar uh, used for burnt sacrifices would be covered, uh, probably with blood, probably with ash, probably with scorch marks. And here is the mark of their sinfulness, that they are offering their sacrifices to false gods on false altars, giving their idolatrous gifts. Uh, mm. And so it's not just that they're, uh, that it's carved into the altars, but it's seen in their idolatrous false god altars. So maybe the the connection between these two things then is that the engraving that has happened in the heart of Judah is a an engraving that maybe you couldn't see. I I don't necessarily know what their idolatrous what their heart looks like, but I can see their idolatry, their altars. And so the you have the the engraving on the heart that's done with this iron pen, this chisel that is the the real problem, but I can't see that. But I do see the idolatry, and and that's the symptom right. of the 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 real problem. And and verse two goes on to keep unpacking that. It talks about how well their children remember their altars and their asherim beside every green tree and on the high hills. Well, what in the world is that all about? Um, so we talked about the altars of idolatry before. Um, asherim. Is, is the plural word for Asherah. Uh, through other places in Scripture, especially in Judges, it talks about the Asherah poles. Asherah was a god of the Canaanites who was uh, celebrated and remembered, um, especially by having an altar. And next to the altar, they would have a pole that would stand up alongside it. Uh, this was a fertility god. And uh, so you would have an altar and next to it, uh, a pole like a tree trunk established. And so this idea of the altar and the Asherim, or this pole next to the altar, honoring a particular Canaanite god, uh, particularly worshiping in the way of the people whose land they came in to possess, but they didn't get rid of the people who lived there like God had told them to. Instead, they let them remain, and they started to worship their gods and worship the way they did. The Canaanites also worshipped, uh, besides green trees or new trees, that weren't real prominent in uh, that time, um, and along the high hills. And so they would go to the high places, and there they would build an altar. They would set up their Asherah poles or their Asherim, and that's where they would meet for their sacrifices, for their worship of false gods. And then, 
Sometimes they would go down to the temple in Jerusalem and they would worship there as well. So they would try to have their cake and eat it too, worshiping their idols and their false gods, and then trying to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, like everything was okay. But everything wasn't okay. Idolatry isn't okay. That sinfulness that says, I want to do things my way. I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want to dabble in this idea that I can worship a false god or that I can have things my way. And then I can go back and worship the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, like everything's okay. That doesn't work. It doesn't work for the Lord our God. He condemns the people of Judah for it. And when we are brazen enough to try it ourselves, he condemns us for it too. I think that your point about that the people of Judah would have gone up to the Asherim and done all the pagan idolatrous practices there and then gone back to the Temple of Jerusalem as if everything was okay. I think that's a really important point. Sometimes I, I think we get in our, our minds the picture that the idolatry in Judah was that they had forsaken the Lord and they were only worshiping the idols. And when in fact, the picture that the prophets give us is that they were worshiping the idols alongside the Lord, that they tried to, as you said, have their cake and eat it too, that they they thought that they could add the worship of idols to the worship of Yahweh, which I, I think makes a text like this a lot more applicable to us today because I don't see a lot of people in Smithville, Texas, bowing down or doing any kind of worship practices next to poles on hills or trees out on hills. But there are a lot of things that we would, to use the language of the catechism, fear, love, and trust in God. And we try to do that, excuse me, to fear, love, and trust in above God or alongside of God. And again, I, I think this is an important point for us to make that the idolatry that we fall into usually isn't a full out replacement of the Lord, or that's not where, what we're intending by it. But we think we can sort of add something else where, where maybe he's slacking off. We think we need to pick up the slack with something else. And that's the idolatry that Judah was falling into. And that's the idolatry we're prone to fall into as well. And we need to be called to repentance, just like the people of Judah did in the 500s BC. Right. I suppose your your fancy word for this, if if anybody's collecting vocab words uh, with us today, would be the word syncretism. Uh, that is to try to worship two different gods at the same time. And sinners, deep down, are syncretistic. The people of Judah wanted to worship Asherah and Yahweh at the same time, having their cake and eating it too. Uh, what are we syncretistic about? Uh, well, we don't have Asherah poles, at least not where I serve or where you serve, but we do have, I don't know, sometimes goalposts on the football field or foul poles um, on the baseball diamond. Or uh, maybe we have those, those goals that we set up of financial success or stability, and we try to do those things and serve the Lord, um, having them be correlated and co-equal focuses in our lives. And that's, that's syncretism, trying to serve two things um, equally and not simply fear, love, and trust in the Lord our God above all things. As Jeremiah continues, having described 
this idolatry that's happening, he then gives the Lord's response. That's in verses three and four. What is the Lord going to do in response to his people's idolatry? So in verses three and four, uh, those words say, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil at the, as the price of your high places and your sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. Uh, here, God is speaking as a father who is about to disinherit his child. Uh, he has called Israel his son. And now he says, the cost of your idolatry, the cost of your syncretism, the cost of trying to worship other gods and me at the same time, is all of those things that I promised to give you, you won't get. That's the price for your idolatry. And so the heritage that I've given you, the fact that you're my, my children that have been promised a land and a kingdom, I'm taking that away. Instead, you're going to serve your enemies, in this case, the Babylonians, in their land that you don't know. You're going to be disinherited and dispossessed. You're going to lose what you have because you have not acted as my people. You haven't acted as my son. It uh, makes me think about the parable that Jesus tells about the prodigal son, where the son goes to his father. Uh, that's in Luke 15. Uh, Jesus, uh, bleh, sorry. The son goes to his father and he says, Father, I want my part of the inheritance now before you've died. And surprisingly, the father gives it to him. And he goes away and he squanders it. He comes back to his father, not asking to be a son again, not asking for another part of the inheritance, not asking to be even welcomed as a son, but simply let me work as one of your servants, not in a strange land that I didn't know. And the father grabs hold of him and says, you're my son. You were dead and now you're alive. You're back. But his brother, that prodigal lost son's older brother, is furious because the, his brother had been disinherited and dispossessed. And he said, how dare you let him back? And he was angry and he insulted his father. And this picture of the prodigal son is very similar to how Israel and the people of Judah especially have treated the Lord their God, who has called them a son, and they said, no thanks, I'd rather do things my own way. And they end up going to a land that they didn't know, to a strange place, and serving the enemy. All of this because they wanted to do it their way. They were idolatrous and rejected the Lord their God. And so the Lord their God will continue to call his people back to him. And we'll see how Jeremiah continues to preach that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, talking Jeremiah chapter 17 with Pastor Peter Ill. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, June 11th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 1 to 13 with Pastor Peter Ill. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor L, prior to the break, we are looking at the images of Jeremiah 17, this opening part of the chapter, and we talked about the writing on the heart, on the horns of the altar, this permanent writing that's there and what the Lord will do to his people because of their idolatry. In verses 5 through 8, Jeremiah gives us a, a new image, at least in our text, but it is a familiar image to us from the scriptures. It is the image of being planted, the image of growing. And Jeremiah does this by way of contrast. He he gives us first the man who doesn't trust in the Lord and what that looks like. And then he gives us the man who does trust in the Lord and what that looks like. Take us into this next image Jeremiah gives us. So in Jeremiah 17 verses five through eight, uh, just so we can have a reminder of the words, it sounds like this. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So verses 5 and 6 talk about how the one who puts their trust in man and not in God, who makes flesh his strength, is cursed and condemned, and will not receive the benefits. He'll be dried up like a shrub in the desert, or... um, it out in the salt flats where nothing grows. There's not growth there. But then verses 7 and 8, on the other hand, there was cursing, but here comes the blessing. The man who trusts in the Lord is blessed, like a tree planted not in the salt flats where nothing grows, but next to the water, next to a stream or a lake, and there there's growth. The heat can come, fine. The leaves remain green. The drought happens, all right, but the tree still bears fruit. Uh, One of the big texts that this parallels, but the order is backwards, is Psalm 1. Uh, Psalm 1 goes like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates, day and night. He is like a tree, planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. 
For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. These words here in Psalm 1 were written before Jeremiah, and the cursing that Jeremiah gives to the people of Judah, that the one who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, and even false gods his strength, there's no benefit there. There's no reward. There's no blessing. Who's Asherah the false god to give blessing? Who is sinful and corrupt man to give blessing? Nobody. On the other hand, the one who trusts in Yahweh, that one is blessed. That one is connected. You also see that picture of the tree in Revelation 21 with the tree in the resurrection that bears its fruit in each season that's planted along the river of life. When you are planted and connected and rooted in the grace of God, there you receive the blessings of God, the fruitfulness of God, and you remain green in trial and in tribulation, in suffering and in pain. In the midst of all that, the Lord your God is faithful to you and strengthens you even in the middle of those dry, difficult times. This is not the first time that Jeremiah has referenced Psalm 1, which I find intriguing. Back in chapter 12, it seems that Psalm 1 was likely in the background of chapter 12. And just as a, a reminder, but in a different way. So as, as a reminder, what the way Jeremiah 12 started, Jeremiah 12, 1 and following, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root, they grow and produce fruit. And, and there's, I mean, what's I think what's interesting about that is that in chapter 12, Jeremiah is looking at the world around him and particularly the people who should be listening to him, but aren't <laughs> the people who should be repenting, but instead of repenting are persecuting him. And he's, he's saying to the Lord, why do they prosper? Why do they look like the tree planted by water? And, and he comes back to Psalm 1 here in chapter 17, almost as a realization that, yes, this is what the world looks like. That's chapter 12. But here's the reality. And it comes from God's word. And there's that, that comfort, I think, that's there in Jeremiah 17, coming back to Psalm 1 for us as Christians still, that when we look around and it doesn't look like Christians are the ones planted by water, it looks like they're the ones that are dry and thirsty and parched all the time. And it looks like the wicked are thriving. We've got Psalm 1, we've got Jeremiah 17 that's drawing from Psalm 1 as, as the Lord strengthening us for that reality, encouraging us to remain connected to, I mean, here's another you know image that goes with this, Christ the vine, that our life comes from him and only in him will we live and thrive. Absolutely. Uh, one of the great things about this Isaiah passage is it's so interwoven within other passages from Isaiah and with passages throughout Scripture, both in the Old and New Testaments. In an hour, we can't really capture all those images. I think you mean Jeremiah, right, Pastor Hill? Yeah, that's what I mean. Sorry. That's fine. It's okay. Sometimes poor Jeremiah sometimes feels like a little brother to Isaiah, but but he's 
you know, Jeremiah, he he deserves his due too. I, I've done that occasionally. And I've also feel like sometimes I have to run to Isaiah for the gospel images. But here's one of them right in Jeremiah that, you know, here's good news for the Christian in the midst of all this this law preaching and, and condemnation and judgment here in Jeremiah is good news that that blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. There's the the tree planted by the water. The other thing that stands out to me in particular in seven and eight with this image, and then I'll let you move on. But is is that the tree planted by water, drought does come and heat does come. You know, that the difference isn't necessarily where the, the tree or the shrub is planted, but but where the source of, of life, the source of water comes from. And I, I want to keep that source of water image in our minds because it's going to come up at the end of the text today. It comes up elsewhere in scripture as well. You know, but again, what, what good news for us that even in the midst of drought and heat, the Lord remains that sustaining source of life for us. Something else to to just kind of plant in our minds, uh, no pun intended, but there I it is. I see what you did there. I, I, not on purpose, I promise, um, <laughs> is Jeremiah talks about that road back and forth between Jerusalem and Babylon as being a dry desert place. Um, and so he talks about the going through the desert. And later he'll talk about the return through the desert. Uh, And always the promise is, when you return, you will dwell with the Lord your God. You will once again be planted, not just because you're close to the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee, but more importantly, you will be planted next to the presence of God. Um, and we'll get we'll get more there at the end of the text. As Jeremiah moves on in verses nine and ten, the image of the heart comes up again. The writing on the heart isn't quite as as doesn't figure as prominently in these verses, but the nature of the heart is there. What does Jeremiah say about the heart, and then how the Lord knows the heart? So in verse nine. Uh, the Lord says through Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Uh, This is our reality. It goes back to, uh, like we had mentioned before, those words of Jesus, when he talked about how the, uh, it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, but it's what flows out of his heart that defiles him. And the heart of sinful people is marked as deceitful and desperately sick. Uh, And that's just laid out there. But then in verse 10, when you hear the words, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. uh, It makes my ears perk up and think, oh, wait, that's what the Lord said to Samuel when he was looking to anoint the next king of Israel. He was there in the house of Jesse, and the Lord had told Samuel, you'll anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king of Israel to replace Saul. And so Jesse brought in his sons before Samuel, and one after another, the Lord said, no, I look into the heart, not him. And finally, they called it out to the fields and brought in the youngest son where he'd been watching the sheep, and there came David. And the Lord who looked into the heart is the one who commanded Samuel to anoint David. Uh, that's all back in, uh, oh, I wrote it down and it hid from me. Um, I think it's so in 1 Samuel. 
first yes, Samuel. Yes, in first Samuel, I think chapter sixteen. That's right. Uh, so many Bible verses in this one; they're all running together. That's right. <laughs> um, uh, and so uh, it calls to mind the Lord who searches hearts and knows hearts, who knows our ways. Uh, that's one example, but there's lots of different examples of the Lord knowing hearts throughout Scripture. Just briefly on this matter of the Lord knowing hearts, because you're right, it it is there. Is this is this good news that the Lord knows our hearts, or is it bad uh, news? In Jeremiah, it is certainly not good news. It's bad news, in fact. <laughs> uh, the Lord looks and sees the deceitfulness and the evil in our hearts, and we are exposed, uh, kind of kind of laid naked before God and all of our faults and all of our sinful thoughts are, are there. Um, even to the point where our evil and wicked and sinful motivations are known. Uh, this makes me think about uh, in the, in the small catechism, it talks about how in the, uh, when pastor Luther is speaking about the creed and the third article of the creed about the Holy spirit and the church, he says, I believe that, I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in my Lord Jesus Christ or come to him. In other words, my heart, left to itself, is always going to pick the evil and the wicked and the bad. There's nothing I can do to get good. My evil heart is picked up. Um, I have kind of this obscure theological novel that I love. Um, and there's a, a young man speaking to an older pastor. And and he wants to to tell the older pastor that he's... He's, he's just really excited about his faith. And he says, well, I want you to know I'm a believer. And the old pastor says, well, that's good. A believer in what? And he said, well, well, I've given my heart to Jesus. And the old pastor looks at him and says, oh, what a fine birthday gift indeed. No, what's really happened is your heart was lying there on the rubbish heap. And your Lord came by and saw this rusty tin can of your heart. And he reached out with his walking stick and he picked it up and he polished it. And he gave it a prized place on his mantle because it is something that he took for his own possession. That is what the Lord has done to your heart. Um, and, and I just love that, that image of it's not that the heart is good. But it's that the Lord grabs hold of sinful hearts, cleans them, washes them, and perfects them, and calls them his treasured possession. That's from the Hammer of God, right, Pastor Hill? It is. It's from the Hammer of God by Bogirts. Ask your pastor to read it. It's a great novel. Oh, yeah. For, for all of the times that you get to say, I have a theological novel that I want to read. Um, the hammer of God is the best theological novel out there. That's right. I just found the quote in my, in my copy. Yeah. Fantastic quote from, from Bill Geertz there in the hammer of God. Pastor Hill, the, the text before us continues, Jeremiah uh, moves on to the world of nature. He talks about a bird gathering a brood she didn't hatch. Now we've seen Jeremiah bring up images from the created world before. What's he talking about with this partridge in verse 11? So, uh, Really, to to unpack what he starts with the the partridge and the uh, the the brood that she didn't hatch, uh, he goes on to say, "So is he who gets riches, but not by justice." Uh, the one who wants to say, "Well, I 
I didn't sit on my eggs. I, I'm not righteous. I'm not acting in the way that the created world is supposed to act, but I'm going to, but I'm going to grab up this, this brood and these chicks and cover them like they're my own. I'm going to, to hoard the wealth of others. Um, and I'm going to take my own forms of righteousness and, and call it mine. Um, it really calls to mind for me, those words that come up in the parable that Jesus gives about the talents. Uh, he had called, he tells a story about a king who had called servants to him. To the first servant, he gave 10 talents of silver for him to take care of and provide for. And to another servant, he gave three talents, or maybe it was five and three. I'm getting my details mixed up. I apologize. And then uh, to the last servant, he gives one talent. Well, the first servant doubles the value. The second servant doubles the value. The third servant says, oh, master, I know you. You're a hard man, reaping rewards of what you didn't do and uh, taking claim for the works of others. So I wrapped up your talent of silver. I dug a hole and I put it in the ground. Here it is. It's back for you. And the king calls him a wicked servant who knew that he took credit and took what wasn't his own and didn't act accordingly. For the one here who says, well, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I want to make sure that I can gather as much as I can and call it my own. Oh, it's not a good day. And so the result of that in the second half of verse 11 is the prophecy, in the midst of his days, they, that is uh, the brood, will leave him, and at his end he will be a fool. This reminds me back of the book of Proverbs, where one who is truly a fool isn't just one who's silly or one who's ignorant, but one who acts apart from faith in the Lord God. One who thinks, I can do it my own way. I can set my own rules. That person is a fool. And the person who says, I'm going to gather up my riches and my righteousness, then that person will be exposed and shown to be a fool. Because after all, it's the Lord who knows all hearts. Hmm. Pastor, we got about eight minutes left just as a way of warning so that you know how to can kind of oh budget my. our time okay. here. There's two more images that I want to make sure we pick up. In verse 12, I want to pick up the image of the throne. And in verse 13, I want to pick up that image of living water. Maybe just take those consecutively, and then we'll spend the remaining time reflecting on the what the text means for us as Christians. Sure. So when we hear that word glorious throne, it calls us back to Jeremiah 14. But it also points us ahead to the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus talks about his return on the glorious throne. And from the glorious throne where he will judge. These are words that are last day words, words that get us ready for the return and the ultimate reign of our Lord Jesus. And this is where this passage turns um, from being, for the most part, a lot of harsh words against the idolatry of Judah to the good news that remains. Because the good news never is gone from the people of Judah, even in the midst of their hardship and their judgment that the Lord brings against them. Instead, he says, a glorious throne set on high from the beginning. This is the throne of God who created the heavens and the earth. 
This is the place of our sanctuary, the place of our safety. And so that glorious throne where we think about judgment for us and for the people of Judah, this is good news. This is the place where we are safe. We are where we sit near the feet of our king and say, here is our king and our God high and lifted up. And around the throne, we cry out, holy, holy, holy. Uh, much like in Isaiah 6, what the angels say uh, as Isaiah gets his vision. Um, we have this, this hope. And uh, on the other hand, there are those who have turned away from the Lord. But here at the very end of verse 13, for the those who are looking exile and affliction and tragedy in the face, the Lord is described as the fountain of living water. And when you hear the fountain of living water, it calls to mind uh, John chapter 4, where Jesus uh, speaks to the woman alongside the well and talks about the fountain of living water. It calls to mind um, also John 7 verse 38, when Jesus promises that he is the living water. Uh, in the Old Testament, it calls to mind Jeremiah 2, 14. And it calls to mind in Ezekiel, uh, about how that fountain of living water that flows forth from the temple out to the Arabah, to the Dead Sea, and brings life. And so it is the Lord our God who brings life, who is the fountain of living water. And the one who believes and drinks from the living water of our God and of our Christ will never die and will never thirst. That's the promise that God gives, even in the middle of his harsh judgments, to his people of Judah. I think these two images here at the end would have been helpful for the people as they went into exile. It's likely that Jeremiah preached these words before the exile, but in the midst of the exile, particularly the words about God's glorious throne set on high from the beginning being the place of our sanctuary. Think about the people of Judah going into exile, watching the temple having been destroyed the house of the Lord. Where is the Lord? This becomes the question. This preaching here from Jeremiah in chapter 17, I think really gives them a word to hang on to in the midst of that, that the Lord's glorious throne is still there for them. He still is their God who will bring them back from exile as he promises in other places in Jeremiah. And so I really think that that these words become a place of refuge for the people of Judah as they go into exile later in Jeremiah's ministry. Pastor Earl, with just about three and a half minutes here left on the morning, what we've talked in detail about this text and its images. What what was Jeremiah preaching to his hearers then, and what does this text have to say for us as Christians now? So, in the Old Testament, you know, six centuries before the birth of Jesus, uh, the Lord rejected Judah's idolatry, and He called them to faithfulness to Him. He even goes on to speak that those who do not believe in him will be punished, reminding us of how uh, the Lord speaks in the close of the commandments. Those who uh, do not act in accordance with my law uh, will be punished to the third and fourth generation. But that doesn't overshadow the grace of God and the fact that for those who love him and obey his commandments, he will be faithful to them for a thousand generations. Yes, the suffering and the pain that is evidence because of sin is real, 
but God's faithfulness is even more real and far superior to that punishment. And so when, we, when the people of Judah see exile coming, when they see punishment and suffering and the affliction of those desert places, even then the Lord comes with his blessing. And that moves not just to the people of Judah, but to us. We see that our own idolatry is condemned, that we are to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And the only thing that is our hope is our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only one who goes to the Father goes through Jesus. When we want to see a picture of God's faithfulness and God's love, this is no mere picture. We look to our Lord Jesus, who is God in the flesh, and it is him who blesses us. It is him who plants us as a tree, because he is the vine, we are the branches. And because of the tree of his cross, we are planted in his righteousness forever. And that is where Jeremiah ultimately draws us today. Pastor Peter Ill is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 1 to 13. Pastor Ill, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. Thank you so much, and God's blessings to you and our listeners. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Jeremiah or this series, any comments, please get in touch with us. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the new KFUO app and the open mic feature there to send up to a 60-second message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.